Welcome to Michael Myers Minute, where we delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween one minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Richie, Keith, and Lonnie run out of frame as Minute 58 begins. Angle on Loomis, he watches them race away, smiling to himself. For the moment, he is a million miles from Haddonfield, from Michael Myers, from his own sordid history with the murders that happened here 15 years ago this very night. In late 1963, per the prose piece Sam by Stephen Hutchinson, quote, Sam Loomis paid his first visit to the crime scene. The remaining family had moved almost instantly to a nearby home arranged by friends who had recently begun a realty business. The house still bore their shadows and fallout from the nuclear family, which up until that night had been bland and horribly normal. Six years old and a killer, he said to himself as he entered the Myers house. Not through the front door, but from a back door that led into the kitchen. This is where Michael Myers had walked, and Sam desperately wanted to understand. Other than a few youthful cobwebs, nothing gave way to a sign of anything wrong, but at the same time, something wasn't right. Silence permeated the air as he entered the hallway and walked slowly up the stairs, his fingers trailed against the paint of the banister. And that's when he began to feel it. Nervousness. An uncertainty, a growing itch that suddenly became a lump in the throat. The boy. How could he have done this? What could have possessed him? Sam continued to trace the killer's steps into the bedroom. His hands felt hot inside but cold to the touch as the color began to drain away from his skin. His heartbeat grew stronger and his eyes darted erratically around the room. The bed, sheets no longer upon it. The dresser, the mirror, the floor, the recent past. The crime scene photographs filled his mind. The girl, Judith Myers, was only fifteen. And there she was, undressed, penetrated and lying in a pool of her own blood. Just a girl. Just a girl. Just a... The lump in his throat grew larger, stronger, suffocating. The pounding of his heart gave way to a vile, dizzying nausea. The room began to distort, and everything he had ran from all of his life, everything that had chased him from his sleep, suddenly came forth strong, immutable, unchangeable. He felt it spread through him, down each vein, an internal scraping that wanted to explode and scream, the very shadow of death caressing him, glaring in his eyes. And in the girl's mirror he saw his own reflection. Skin washed out, icy white, only the shape of a man. He stepped back, took a gasp of air, and then his stomach gave in and he vomited on the floor. The calm began to return, as did the reasoning and the intellect. But this time it was different. He was different. There was an understanding, a numbing realization of what was at hand. Weeping fragments of horror accumulated throughout his many long years began to point mockingly to this very place before coagulating into a single prehensile entity. Something had emerged, something buried away long ago, in him, and perhaps in every man. Something that had no name, something hideous, something that now had a human form. It wasn't the first time Sam Loomis had become aware of his own mortality, but without mercy this knowledge sliced through everything that he had previously considered rational. He felt himself fall into a quiet, dark place. All that was left was fear. End quote. And I found the best take on Dr. Loomis just today. A piece in the Dead to Rights blog by Joe Blevins posted 19th October 2013 under the title Loomis, Not Michael, is the Real Boogeyman, an alternate reading of John Carpenter's Halloween 1978. 
Blevin suggests that Michael was in shock after murdering his sister, and that's why he stood there with a blank stare through that crane shot in Minute 7. Will Sandin's six-year-old Michael doesn't have the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, as Loomis describes him in Minute 40. Blevins writes, quote, Personally, what I saw was a terrified, very confused little boy who was appalled at his own actions, end quote. I won't get sidetracked into how this description fits with the Thorn Colt control or Michael being driven by the voice of Enda because I like the projection that Blevins suggests, and which I previously talked about with a couple of my guests, especially Johnny Powers, who was here for that previous speechifying Loomis offered to Sheriff Brackett. Blevins compares Loomis to Captain Ahab, as I have before, to Inspector Javert, to Victor Frankenstein. In my interpretation of Halloween, Blevins explains, Dr. Loomis viewed the six-year-old Michael Myers as the personification of evil because that's what he wanted to see in the boy. Set aside Blevins for a moment, and let us return to Hutchinson, the technically canon-ish story of Sam Loomis. Quote, The shadow of this fear would never leave Sam. It would always be there, just over his shoulder, like the hooves of the devil waiting for him to fall. The same darkness that claimed his parents all those long years ago was now with him, stood close, breathing softly down his neck. The boy grew up, as boys always did, and in perfect symmetry so too expanded the dark cloud that surrounded him, a rootless black flower waiting to bloom. Beneath this placid exterior, the boy planned and envisioned his own path, all the while staying silent. As the boy's calculated stare pierced Sam deeper each day, he noticed that the looks cast his way from those around him grew more and more judgmental. Eyes that once admired him passed sentence on him now. After all, why was he so obsessed? Why did a supposedly brilliant doctor have such an unhealthy preoccupation with one patient? A patient who had never even said a word, and for all intents and purposes had been a model prisoner. You don't understand. Sam lost count of how many times those words had passed through his lips to his colleagues. Every time the mocking response would be masked by a polite and occasionally sympathetic smile that only added to the weight on his shoulders. Each laugh, each whisper that he caught dwelled in him. For many nights he would sit and stare at his reflected image, distraught at his own helplessness, a feeling that made even the aging process insignificant. After all, Sam was getting old, his hair gone, lines drawing their own way across his face, lungs unable to hold enough oxygen. The gun didn't taste of anything. At the point he placed it into his own mouth, he was numb to anything sensory. Again, he stared into the mirror. The frame was barren, but the glass was polished. Unlike many others who had chosen to end their lives, Sam had intended to do it with full clarity and without distraction. As such, no letters had been written, nor were there any pictures of long-absent friends and long-avoided relatives. Not even a mention of the boy. No, this was about himself and himself only. Neither the dear nor the estranged had any place here. A sad old man crying, that's all I am, that's why they curse me. A pathetic, cowardly creature with memories lost and broken, how far have I come from who I was? What has changed inside me? Why can't I change it back? Why am I letting these things control and destroy me for a thousandth time? I don't want this life. I loathe this emptiness, this abhorrent isolation. I want things to make sense. I want my world to be beautiful again. I want everybody to come back. And at that point, he pressed hard on the trigger, and one more thought, simple and haunting, seared through him. But what if I'm right? One by one, his fingers softened, and the pistol dropped to the floor. He wiped his face. 
It was December 31, 1977. Within a year, his question would be answered. End quote. The great thing here is that the sequence fits either interpretation, that Michael is evil and Loomis recognizes it, or that Loomis has been projecting onto his patient something mad. And Blevins goes as far as suggesting that Loomis, at least subconsciously, deliberately set Michael upon the world. Quote, It's easy to see that Dr. Loomis has a blanket contempt for humanity in the way he interacts with virtually everyone else in the film. He's short-tempered, condescending, haughty, and cold. Hardly the type to be self-sacrificing humanitarian concerned with protecting society. He feels the need to keep Michael under wraps, but only out of neurotic guilt at his own role in creating the monster, not out of concern for others. Most of the things Loomis says about Michael are really about himself. End quote. Now let us move forward into minute 58. Loomis stands, smiling. Second seven. Suddenly a hand enters the frame and grabs Loomis' shoulders. Loomis jumps and spins around, standing there as bracket. In the novelization, Loomis draws his gun. Loomis. Jesus. Bracket. You alright? Loomis. Yeah. Bracket. Nothing is going on except kids playing pranks, trick-or-treating, parking, getting high. I have the feeling that you're way off on this. Samira Kawash, who I referenced before in Minute 27, writing in Gangsters, Pranksters, and the Invention of Trick-or-Treating, 1930 and 1960. American Journal of Play, citing an article from the Los Angeles Times, 1938, describes Halloween festivities. Quote, From house to house, the boys and girls will travel, punching doorbells with nerve-jangling peals. Trick-or-treat is the terse command as the householder peeks warily around the door. If you don't give us something, we'll play a trick on you. So the diminutive Halloween goon squads are bought off with cookies, candy, tickless alarm clocks or the price of an ice cream cone. Angelinos anticipated littering the porch with paper, burning film to create a bad smell, putting flower pots on chimneys, defacing political posters, and tying tin cans to the axles of cars, none of which seemed particularly vicious. The Times called the children goon squads, but also diminutive, suggesting that the larger, stronger adult suspended his or her strength to play victim against the comical aggressor. End quote. I suggested in minute 33 that Nichols Hardware Watch, which most viewers would think Michael robbed, was, as Brackett suggests, just robbed by kids. Though a page in the comic, The First Death of Laurie Strode, shows the masks, like Michael's, that Nichols has in his shop and he throws them away. Maybe that's where Bennett Trammer got his mask. In the novelization, minute 31, graveyard keeper Angus Taylor tells Loomis, this happens to me every Halloween. But back to minute 58. Loomis, you have the wrong feeling. Bracket, you're not doing very much to prove me wrong. Loomis, what more do you need? Bracket, well, it's going to take more than fancy talk to keep me up all night crawling around these bushes. And then we get Loomis's... Is this his second, third big speech? I watched him for 15 years, sitting in a room, staring at a wall, not seeing the wall looking past the wall, looking at this night, inhumanly patient, waiting for some secret silent alarm to trigger him off. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. You can either ignore it, or you can help me to stop it. Bracket. More fancy talk. And the minute ends. Back to Blevins. Quote. The bulk of the story takes place off-screen. We see exactly two days of this 15-year saga. 
Dr. Loomis tries to downplay what happened in the intervening decade and a half. He would have us believe that Michael was already an incurable psychotic at the age of six. It just took him 15 years to escape and do what he was destined to do. Naturally, in the one scene from the movie which takes place in a classroom, Laurie Strode's teacher lectures her students about fate and destiny. But this is all subterfuge. Michael Myers wasn't necessarily destined to become a serial killer from the age of six. Loomis saw an opportunity with this vulnerable kid and took it. End quote. Back to Hutchinson. It jumps forward to Loomis arriving at the Doyle house and covers those last moments of the film in about a page. After Loomis shoots Michael and pronounces him the boogeyman, there is this, quote, When Sam walked to the balcony, he realized two things. If Michael Myers' corpse lay there on the lawn, then everything would be over, and he had overestimated his opponent and misread the path of his own life. If he was not there, then even his worst thoughts did not come close to the actuality of the night. He peered over the edge into the abyss, and before his eyes spoke to him, he knew that his findings, or lack thereof, would be inevitable. There was no surprise. Myers had gone. End quote. But let us not get too far ahead of ourselves. That is all for Minute 58. Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. You can stalk me on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute or Instagram Michael Myers Minute. Or join the Facebook listeners group 45 Lampkin Lane. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a nice review if you like what you hear. If you really like what you hear or you want to help it get better, you can join the Thorn Cult and help me out by donating through Patreon. Patreon.com slash Myers Minute. Until next time. See you later. Bye. Bye. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh?